Um, thank you for inviting me. Before I start, I just want to say thanks to Karen and her team for this project, which I think is really needed and really important, and thanks to the SRHE for funding it. Okay, so I'm going to talk about how I went about trying to respond to this question of the relationship between HE research and HE policy from the perspective of a kind of a, an ordinary researcher in higher education. I'm just going to share some of my thoughts with you. Um, so there are four questions which occurred to me when I first began to think of this challenge. First of all, I wanted to make sure that I understood why we might want HE research to play a different role in HE policy. Secondly, I started getting stuck on this notion about who is the we in all of this. And even this morning, listening to some of the talks, it still occurs to me, when we say we, can we really identify in a collective way in this, or are we actually disparate groups of disparate interests? Then I started to think about my own experience of trying to make some kind of route from HE research um, to HE policy and how that might work. And then I tried to conclude by thinking, well, what exactly do we want to influence? Picking up on what William and what Julie and what Helen said, we really need to know what it is we're trying to do. Okay, so bear with me now as I kind of talk through these four questions. First of all, in answer to the question, why do we want HE research to do something different? Well, I think you only need to look at some of the statements made by some of our politicians to get a sense of why maybe research could play a different kind of role. So David Willett has long held the view that teaching has been by far the weakest aspect of English higher education. And recently, um, Joe Johnson picked up on this in terms of justifying the tech. He says, lamentable teaching must be driven out of our system. These are very strong comments. Are they informed by the research? Well, if you look at NSS, which is probably our best guide for all its flaws to teaching satisfaction, actually it goes up every year. So there isn't really any evidence there. So I went to the white paper which was published earlier this year and looked at the evidence that's actually cited there about the quality of teaching. Um, and there are two sources that we cut. There are two sources are um, the statement that one third of undergraduates in England think their course is poor or very poor value for money. And three in ten students think that the academic experience of HE is poor value. So it's both value um, statements about higher education. I then saw some, so I went through the footnotes to see where the evidence actually came from. The first one comes from the Student Academic Experience Survey, which is run by HEPI and the HEA. So that's quite a large survey, around uh, 15,000 people interviewed last time. Here's the graph that they show. So the graph on the top shows students saying good value for money, and the darker line on the bottom is poor or very poor value for money. And you can see that since 2012, it's increased from 18% to 32% of students saying they're not getting value for money. But of course, the big thing here is everything changes in 2012. And of course, 2012, as you all know, is the year the higher fees were introduced. So it could be, one might assume probably is, affected by the fact that the price of the degree went up rather than it, it actually being a crude statement about teaching quality. And in fact, before 2012, you can see that more students were saying they got good value for money. And this is noted in the, in the report. So the report itself says, this decline is likely to be partly explained by the fact that students are incurring much larger debts than in the past, even though universities' teaching income hasn't gone up commensurately. So the report gives an explanation, but the data is taken and may be used to make a different kind of argument. The other source is a pretty obscure, obscure source, because it's from which magazine? And it's from a report they did called A Degree of Value in 2014. And the methodology of this is quite chaotic in some kinds of ways because they use um, data from focus groups and interviews and they use multiple um, surveys conducted at different times by different groups. But they took them all together and they find um, overall um, 7 in 10 undergrads who are paying higher fees and 8 in 10 graduates who paid lower fees 
thought their university experience was good value for money. That's actually 80% of them under the pre-2012 system saying it's good value for money. That's not maybe too bad, but it does change once fees go up. But this is the evidence, and I would suggest that the evidence for the change in policy is maybe disproportionate um, to the actual change in policy. So therefore, I think we might want HE research to play a different role. Of course, the headlines in the newspapers tend to pick up on these headlines, so we get lots of um, headlines that say, um, student, come to student, university isn't worth it, students getting less value for money despite rising fees. These kind of headlines are important, and one of the things that I'm really interested in my research is how policy affects public discourses, because I have this idea that universities used to have quite a good reputation in society, and now they don't quite have such a good reputation in society. It's also interesting to note how public discourses are... Uh, won't say manipulated, but I'll say affected by um, political discourse in this area. So Joe Johnson earlier this year says students are looking critically at what they get for their investments, and so must we as governments on behalf of taxpayers. Now, do you think of where the sides are um, here, how the kind of dichotomy is being um, created? We've got students and government and taxpayers on one hand, and therefore universities on the other hand. And if you look at this by um, an article that I think appeared in Wonky by Emran Meehan, who was associated with the Brown Review last year, he says, universities enjoy significant market power. The TEF is designed to strengthen the position of students and prospective students via these powerful institutions. So the universities become the bad guys with all the power, and the government take the side of the students. Now, I'm digressing slightly from the issue of policy, but I do think this is important in terms of the long-term effects of the relationship between policy and research. And you've got this tug of war, and the students kind of in the middle, and students are basically or traditionally loyal to um, the universities, but are being pulled in a different direction. Okay, a second question that I wanted to ask was really about this notion of we and who the we is. Um, I think from my point of view, I'm probably fairly clear what I mean when I talk about the kind of higher education research that we do. So I know the kind of journals that um, I might publish in, I know the kind of conferences that I might attend, I connect with people on Twitter, I enjoy that, um, there's a community of scholars who are active in this area, I read certain kinds of literature, but I'm also conscious um, that my we isn't necessarily everyone else's we. So we've also got a we that represents all the individual universities within the country. And they've got a different kind of approach to policy because they're, as um, Helen talked about quite clearly, they're interested, they're competing in a market, they need to do well in a market, they need to defend their market position. So we see headlines about universities leaping forward in research power, um, having the best ever NSS results, scoring a hat-trick of modern University of the Year titles. The awards are very important, the rankings are very important, but that's a different kind of voice within the sector. There's also the we that's represented by... Um, mission groups, so Million Plus, Guild, HE, UAE, all of the others. The N8 is an interesting new one, Northern 8 Research Partnership, which came up with a headline last week, N8 output is greater than, than that of all the Premier League teams combined, which I still can't make sense of the methodology. I don't understand how you can compare Premiership teams to academic output, but nevertheless, what they're doing is trying to defend their own interests, because that's what lobby groups do. And if you read the Russell Group statements, I picked this one just from a few days ago after the Conservative Party conference where the suggestion was made that net migration targets should be linked to the quality of a higher education course. All of, the, um, all of the mission groups released their own statement, but there were differences. And for the Russell group, who have a different kind of constituency, they maybe helped, they welcomed the government's commitment um, to attract the brightest and best. So they found a different way of spinning what was happening. These groups are in opposition to each other, and they maybe form another layer in terms of trying to define who the we is. 
So, how, if you're a HE researcher, can you navigate a roof from yourself with your laptop in the corner to Parliament at the top? I'm just going to reflect on this a little bit. I don't think it's straightforward. I don't think it happens like that. And one of the reasons for that is that we've got all of these um, groups in the middle that have different and sometimes competing interests. When there is a roof, it can be straightforward and it can be the fact that maybe you've got a university who can help you because after all we're researching something um, that's very close to our heart. They belong to a mission group and maybe it's direct, but there was a word used in both William's talk and Julie's talk which was messy. And I tend to think it's much messier than that. I think if you're lucky enough to influence um, policy with any of your research, it's probably with, with a combination of luck and messiness and it's a very circuitous route. Um, this was something that I wrote last summer um, when the TEF was first mentioned um, by Joe Johnson. I got uh, an email from the Guardian Higher Education Network and they said, could you write something like 10 rules of teaching excellence um, framework should follow and I was busy so I only got up to seven but um, <laughs> they were basically very very straightforward things like m try to make it ungameable it should be collegial because if you're doing good teaching it's probably not just because you're on your own it needs to be long term not just you know students evaluation immediately after the lecture it should be cheap because the rest cost in the sector a lot of money it should be inclusive so we're not worried about who's in and who's out it should be modest language that's realistic and, and restrained rather than gold medals and things and it should be open-minded because we need to be creative in our teaching so it's a fairly basic um kind of blog that i wrote for the higher education network and the next day i got a phone call from um a civil servant who was in biz and said i read your blog can i come meet you for coffee and can we have a chat about this and we did and he asked some questions and that was fine and then he said would you like to meet the minister so I thought, oh, this is good. This doesn't usually happen. So I agreed to that. And a couple of weeks later, I went down to London to Biz and met Joe Johnson, who's a minister. And there are uh, three or four academics there. Um, we hadn't met each other before, and we didn't know who one another would be. Um, and we kind of realized that we sort of needed a consistent narrative if we were going to have any impression. So we sort of had a very quick chat beforehand and decided that the use of um, graduate employment statistics in the TEF was something we all felt was inappropriate, particularly salary data. So we made sure we got that message through. So it's quite useful. And then a little bit later, um, I got invited to attend and speak at this all-party parliamentary university group with Joe Johnson and with a couple of other MPs. And I talked about some things, and I'll show you my reflections in a moment. The reason I mention this is primarily to say that actually impact or um, influence in policy can come through non-academic routes. None of this was really based on my research. It was based much more on writing a blog, which took me a couple of hours to do, to be honest, and then really a lot of luck involved afterwards. So um, I went to this, um, this meeting of the All-Party par all Parliamentary University Group, which is like a select committee, and I said my bit and everyone else said their bit. Um, my um, reflections on the train coming back to Manchester afterwards um, I made some notes and I looked at this because I thought it might be useful for, for this event today. So this was just my reflections on what policymakers want from academics, and they're certainly positives. I think they definitely welcomed um, ground-level insights from normal academics. I think um, politicians are used to dealing with vice-chancellors and lobby groups and people who are interested in peddling a particular line, and actually they're very distant from ordinary academics. And therefore, they were actually wanting to understand how university teaching works at a very basic level. How many hours do you do? What are your students like? What kind of things? How do you assess them? And they were appreciative. 
there were some negatives. They weren't particularly interested in actual research. And so as soon as I mentioned any kind of research project that I might have undertaken, you could kind of see their eyes glazing over a little bit. They didn't really want to know anything to do with methodology. They wanted to know about outcomes. They also, and this was mentioned by um, William and Helen as well, they kind of wanted their own gut feelings vindicated. So they had their ideology, in some cases you suspected they had their policy in place, and they wanted a bit of academic credibility. Um, they're also kind of fixated with anecdotes and personal experiences. One of the pieces of research that I drew their attention to is that big hefty report in 2014 called Degrees of Difference, which amongst other things noted that um, BME students are much less likely to get a first or two one. Um, and this, that survey is based on a whole cohort. There's about 340,000 students who were assessed. But afterwards, one of the MPs, a backbencher, came to me and told me an anecdote about his niece who went to Bristol University and actually didn't do very well at all, even though she was white and female. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so this, uh, well, I don't know what was in her mind, but anyway, I was very polite about it, but I, I, I think they're much more used to dealing with um, personal experience and personal anecdotes rather than large amounts of data. Um, so there are challenges, and there are challenges that I noted for myself. I need to get much better at speaking policy makers' language um, I think they have their own language and they're used to talking in a certain way and I found it um, even to use very mild phrases from social sciences can be to alienate them. Um, I, I, I made a note that to remember that it's a very mixed ability audience. I kind of expected everyone to be really well informed. Some people were. Some of the MPs, particularly those at big universities in their constituency, clearly um, had ongoing dialogue and knew all the issues. Some of the people that really didn't have any clue about what was going on, maybe they'd read a campus novel in the 1970s or something, but it really didn't go much beyond that. And the final point is, really, my note to self was forget your academic training. It made me reflect on my own academic training, my own academic background. The PhD, which encourages us to write 80,000 words in a very prescribed formula that was popular in 19th century German academia, but doesn't really have much relevance for, certainly for policy influencing. Now, the way we write academic papers, the delay that William and, and Helen have talked about, um, none of these things are set up in such a way that allows us to influence policy, but we do tend to persist with them because of our mm. sense of tradition. Um, so who or what does HE research want to influence? What are we trying to do? I found it useful when thinking about this um, to set out the three kind of things we might want to influence. Government policy, which we're here today to talk about, um, but I think also sector behaviour, what we do within the sector and also within our own universities, the practice that goes on in our universities, I think there's a challenge for HE research to become more joined up with actually our day-to-day -day practices as well as um, national policy. I think there are lots of things we can do. I think we need to be seen to research our own practices justly and vigorously and challenge dominant cultures where appropriate. We've had the evidence from Diane Ray and Carol and lots of people for lots of decades about what we need to do and how some students are alienated, how some students fit in more at universities than others. But we're maybe slow, actually, within our universities ourselves to respond to the evidence. I think we need to move away from academic language and the signals of elitism that are encoded there. I think we need to think of ways to use our research to help our applicants and students more directly. I think we need to overtly keep our students on side, let them understand, let them know what we're doing and show them how the research that we use, partly funded by their fees, can actually help them as well. I think we need to embrace social media to disseminate and discuss research. Um, school teachers do it much better than we do. So school teachers have lots of hashtags where they talk to each other, they share practice. 
um, they discuss ways of doing things differently. I think within higher education, we're a bit nervous or maybe a bit snobbish about social media. Um, we need to begin to build agreement for the reasons um, that other speakers have said, so we can have clear research headlines and consistent research narratives that play well with policymakers. I think we need to be proactive in things like metrics. We don't like metrics. We feel as though we're over-measured in lots of ways. But maybe there are different kinds of metrics that we can use um, in order to suggest things constructively and positively to po policymakers. So, for example, um, long-term well-being of our graduates, we have no way of measuring this. We rely on how much they earn, and we assume that's the only thing that matters, but maybe we can advocate for a different kind of survey. Um, outcome differences, maybe we can think about how we might close them and how that could be used as a metric. Um, I think going with this new positive discourses around HE, I think these public discourses will be very damaging to us in the long run unless we find a way to improve the credibility of universities in the eyes of public. And I think we need to look at other sectors as well in terms of what they do. And this is my final slide. I just wanted to talk about um, a different sector, school teaching sector. And a couple of years ago, I was invited to this conference by the ASCL, which is the Association of School and College Leaders. And I thought it was interesting to reflect on how they do things differently in terms of their national big conference with lots of teachers and thousands of people. First thing is they got the um, Secretary of State for Education and her counterpart, the Shadow Secretary of State, both to attend. And that made me think, well, is there a conference we have in higher education that the Minister for Higher Education always comes to? And I'm not sure there is. I'm not sure there's an equivalence. Throughout the conference, there was this single message, trust to transform. That was their message. It was emblazoned across the stage. It was mentioned by all of the key speakers. They talked about this. What they meant by trust to transform, um, to put it more kind of plainly, is they were fed up of government interference and they were saying, okay, we get the message, but now you have to back off and, and give us space to change things in terms of secondary school teaching. Um, in the way we wanted. But they repeated this message all of the time. They didn't really talk much about research or evidence. This was the only bit of evidence that was presented at the whole conference. The survey was, they surveyed lots of teachers and said, do you want to see an end to piecemeal change in, in policy? Okay, and there's the result, and the blue line is obviously very important, and the, the yellow line's important, and the grey line, people say, no, I want more piecemeal um, change. It doesn't make sense at all, that's what I'm saying. It's a, it's a research headline that's very easy to understand, it's not complicated at all, and through this they were able to reiterate a message, and they get the ministers in, they get the policy makers in, and they say, this is what we want from you. Now, within higher education, we value different things, we value... Um, discussion and arguments about nuanced differences and we value theorizing and we value lots of things that makes us different and maybe makes us nervous about this kind of approach but I wonder whether and I don't really know what the answer is but I wonder whether in the future we need to build agreement around certain core arguments so we can speak directly to government about the big things that matter in terms of policy from a consistent position that's it thank you